0: Everybody, welcome to this very special inaugural edition of Experimental Brewing with
1: Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn, and I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing: Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Homebrew All Stars. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. Uh, weird beer doesn't even get
0: close. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with experiments to test it out. Uh, My motto has been question authority since as
1: long as I can remember. Drew, tell us about our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by the fine folks at Craftmeister, the makers of Alkaline Brewery Wash. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is brewery clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety.
0: And by Imperial Organic Yeast, 200 billion cells in a Petrite can, ready to make great beer for you. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, what we intend for this podcast to be and what you guys are in for. We're going to have a weekly segment that we call The Beer Life, where we'll be talking about uh, the commercial brewing world and what's going on there. Uh, we might even be tasting some commercial beers live on the air. Every week we'll be uh, giving you some experiments you can try to do to uh, improve your own beer. We'll be talking recipes and uh, we'll be uh, telling you how to go about improving your beer by uh, taking emails from you guys and calls one of these days. So uh, stand by. There's a lot coming down the road on the Experimental Brewing Podcast podcast. We're going to start off with this week's segment of The Beer Life, and uh, the big news these days is uh, consolidations and buyouts in the beer world. So uh, Drew and I kind of have different feelings about this, although I, he doesn't know this yet, but uh, I'm kind of coming around more to his point of view. Sweet. But, yeah, well, you know, sometimes even a blind squirrel finds a nut and... You're right, maybe, sometimes. So, at any rate, uh, Drew, tell us about some of the news going on around us.
1: All right. Well, first, I want it in writing that I'm right sometimes. Uh, I need that in a court of law and possibly with my wife.
0: Yeah, right. And, and I, you know, if I am ever right, I would be looking for the same thing. So, uh, no problem. Well, it hasn't
1: happened yet, but, you know. It yeah. May.
0: It's, it's Like I said, even a blind squirrel. <laughs> All
1: right. Well, so... In the past couple of weeks, what we've really noticed is uh, a sudden ramping up and speed up of the amount of consolidation that's happening in the craft beer world. For years, this whole industry, you know, our beloved part of it has been defined by this sort of uh, up the man uh, attitude. You know, uh, we're, we're small, we're independent, we're fierce. And, and now suddenly what we're seeing is Lagunitas is entering into a partnership or selling out to Heineken. Uh, St. Archer down in San Diego uh, is selling out to Miller Coors. Uh, Golden Road here in L.A. sold out to ABI. Cisco to CBA. Dogfish Head gave 15% of themselves over to a private equity firm. And, of course, now the really big scary one is Anheuser-Busch is trying to buy out SAB Miller, which is terrifying.
0: Yeah, and I I have to admit that when that started happening, that's when I kind of started rethinking my position. Um, I started off feeling really... Good for the guys who were selling and making all this money. I mean, let's face it, breweries are a business. Uh, no matter how much you love beer and want to share that with people, the bottom line, in both senses of the word, is that you got to make money to to keep that brewery open and to keep sharing your beer with people. Well, so when and,
1: they... and and you have to make money to be able to live. And I mean, it is a lot of work. Oh yeah. So,
0: and so, so so when this started happening I was going god this is this is great I'm so glad those guys at Elysian you know got some bucks back for everything that they've done but this uh, this latest uh, AB SAB Miller thing has started to kind of give me pause because it it starts making you a little bit worried about distribution
1: Yeah well and and, and that's my main my main worry is that uh, you know there's the whole attitudinal thing that, that we have about craft beer. And, you know, it's exactly what I said. You know, craft beer was all kind of founded around this idea of, you know, damn the man, you know, we're going to bring back flavor to the world. And, you know, people really kind of took that to heart. And, and, and you know, it's the, hey, I know the people who are producing my beer. It's not just a big anonymous group of people who are might as well be selling widgets. Um, and so, yeah, congratulations to everybody who's getting money because we are at a point where a lot of, are sort of first-generation, even second-generation craft breweries. Their owners are getting to a point where they're thinking about what they're going to do with the rest of their life. You know, retire, uh, move on. You know, Uh, Greg Cook from Stone just basically said he was stepping down as CEO. Uh, So, And
0: let me just say, retirement is a wonderful thing.
1: Yeah, I'll get there in about 30, 40 years, Um, maybe. (laughs) Um, But... So I, I have no fault with somebody being able to actually kind of turn around and take their uh, take their dream and actually get some cash out of it in the end if that's what they really want but-
0: I'm, I'm torn about this whole thing because in in one respect if these guys start messing around with distribution of craft beers and they they're in effect, affecting the this very these breweries that they just paid a lot of money to buy and i i have to ask myself what sense does that make to to go out and buy these things and then do something to affect the amount of income you get from them on the on I,
1: well yeah. here's the thing now. i don't think they're going to affect the amount of income they get from those brands like say golden road or Legion. uh here's what i think the ultimate game is you know We've had this explosion of craft breweries. You know, I think we are now over 4,000 breweries in, mm-hmm. in the U.S., which is amazing. <laughs> Truly. Uh, and while the breweries are expanding, you know, there's only so many taps and so much shelf space. You know, like, while our breweries are going through this incredible growth, you know, they're not doubling up the size of your local bar the your, of your local party store. You know, there's only so much room that you can put uh, beer brands on. And so... My worry and what I think the ultimate end game is is, yeah, Anheuser busch will do exactly what they did with Goose Island. They'll keep part of the operation going to keep street cred, right? You know, with the whole uh, Sophia and the Daughter series and uh, Bourbon County. Uh, and then they'll go and they'll outsource the more approachable beers, you know, the 312, the Honkers IPA or uh, Honkers uh, and their IPA. And they'll outsource that to one of their big breweries like in Newark, right? Produce a bunch of it and be able to flood the market with it. And here's where the here's where the dirty piece of pool comes into play. They can now turn around to a bar owner or a craft beer store, or sorry, a beer store owner and say, hey, look, I know you really want to have an IPA, but here, we'll sell you a, a keg of Golden Road IPA for $68. And meanwhile, that IPA from your local microbrewery that's going to be 160 and you gotta you gotta look at it from a from a bar owner's point of view from like a bar owner who isn't passionate about the idea of craft beer but is more like hey this is what's selling right now this is what's bringing people into my bar that's going to be a big damn draw
0: yeah it is it is and you know it's going to be interesting to see where things go um you know, uh, it, it reminds me of the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Huh? Well,
1: so th- These are definitely interesting times. And I'll tell you, I what I would love to see more of in this industry, and of course, I don't have any money in the industry, so uh, my opinion is basically uh, useless. Uh, I would love to see more and more breweries either setting up to be a multi-generational family thing, like Sierra Nevada, or doing the whole employee stock buyout. Uh, kinda like uh what Full Sale had done and what mm-hmm. uh New Belgium just did. Uh because to me, that maintains that craft beer ethos, you know, that, that maintains that ability for me to be able to go, ah, okay, I still I, I still have some trust that this isn't ultimately about some sort of dirty pool game of separating me from my money and screwing over the competition.
0: Yeah, right. Well, you know, we'll keep an eye on this as it develops, and believe me, uh, you'll get lots more of our opinions, but uh, that's the beer life for this week. Okie dokie. This week, we're going to be talking about the uh, Triangle Test, which we feel like is kind of like the key to the whole effort behind uh, trying to improve your beer. Uh, now... Pretty much everybody out there uh, knows how to drink beer, right? Uh, pl- please raise your hand if you don't. Uh, we'll send Drew over to help you get that together.
1: Uh, does, does it count as drinking beer if sometimes I spill it on myself? Uh, as long as you suck it out of your shirt, sure, that's fine. You know, uh, I, I can do that. That's what the beard's that's for. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I ain't going there, buddy. Uh, So, But the problem with drinking beer is that you can sit back and you can say to yourself, boy, this is a really good beer. I really enjoy this beer. Uh, This beer has got to be better than the last time that I brewed this beer because this time I used uh, some strange hop that was uh, grown in the outback of Australia or something like that. The problem with that is you don't really know you're enjoying your beer and that's a wonderful thing. And that's what we all strive for. But do you really know that the changes you made are why you're enjoying that beer more? Do you uh, really have an idea about if, if that change really made the difference that you think that
1: it did? This is what, Well, of course I do because I'm, I'm smart. Yeah. I know. Exactly sure. What
0: right. Beer oh beer yeah. Is. No, man, you know, we're, we're beer judges. We know all this stuff inside out, but, the problem is that we don't really. So that's where the triangle test comes in. The triangle test is a way to objectively evaluate your beer and changes that you make to it so that you can find out if those changes are really making a difference in your beer. Now, Drew and I call ourselves two of the laziest people on the planet. Uh, We would have arguments about who's lazier, except that neither one of us wants to really make the effort to get involved in that
1: argument uh yeah it takes too much energy to be that bothered. yeah
0: i know you know so let's just say that i'm lazier than drew is uh you know yeah so the uh, with that in mind we don't want to like do any efforts when we're brewing that don't really pay off in either better beer or more fun my mantra for making beer is make the best beer possible with the least effort possible while having the most fun possible because let's face it this is a hobby folks and if you're not having fun while you're brewing then there's something that's going wrong and you need to look at that
1: yeah and and i'll tell you i've seen some brewers i've watched them brew where you look at them and they're stressing out like uh, yeah i've got uh, uh, sorry folks it's time to get to the fermentation i need to scrub myself down like i'm a surgeon
0: and you know and i'm not i'm not saying that you you should take brewing lightly but you should take brewing not seriously and by not seriously uh what i mean is you don't you know, this is not a life or death situation. We're not trying to cure cancer. You don't have a business that you're trying to uh, to make sure that you keep pulling in the money. This is a home brewing hobby that should be fun for you. So, in order to do that, you want to make sure that uh, anything you do when you're brewing is fun and it's worth it. Now, here's a quick example. Drew and I both believe that decoction mashing just is not worth the effort it doesn't produce enough of a noticeable difference in your beer to be worth the effort that it takes to do it but if you want to do it and you think it's fun and to you that's a big part of what makes brewing worthwhile go for it you know it doesn't really make any difference until
1: you try and tell us that it's making your beer better. <laughs> but if you just. Well, uh, or actually, I would say it doesn't make any difference until you try and tell us that we're dumb and wrong and stupid and making bad beer. because Yeah, right. Bar.
0: Okay. That's that's a much better way to put it. Uh, believe it or not. God, that's twice. He's been right. I just hate it when that happens. Uh, Somebody chalked up the scoreboard. Two nothing. <laughs> two nothing. Drew's ahead. So basically the uh, the the cure for all of this is to uh, run a blind triangle tasting on your beer when you make changes to ingredients or procedures
1: uh, when you're brewing. So, hey, Danny, how's a triangle test different than a square test? Uh, it only has three sides. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
0: Boy, that sounds like the kind of question I'd ask. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what a triangle test is and how to set one up. Um, The very simplest uh, thing is that in a triangle test, you have three beers. In general, two of them will be the same and one will be different. Um, someone else pours these beers for you so you have no idea which is which and you simply try and pick out the one that's different if you can pick out the one that's different and do it enough times or enough people can do it then you know that the change you made actually is a valid change and and did something that really is going to make a difference.
1: Now, the- Yeah, people can detect it. I mean, the whole idea behind a triangle test is to get rid of the sort of 50-50 bias of which one of these samples yeah, do you
0: uh, like better. Yeah, that's, and that's pretty much it. And it's it's a way to really help eliminate your own biases, uh, Uh, You know, if you're doing something that affects the color of the beer, you'll want to serve it like in a cup where you can't see the color, stuff like that. But for the main part, you're going to be uh, comparing
1: tastes. So real quick, the setup for a triangle test is you have three samples, uh, label them ABC, circle, square, uh, star, however you want to do it. Just don't label them one, two, three, right? Uh, Because that actually induces a bias. Uh, but you take, you, you have three cups set up, they're all labeled. Somebody somewhere else in a room that you're not seeing pours the exact same beer into two of the cups and they choose those randomly and they pour a the other beer into the third remaining cup. So now you have two cups that are the same, one cup that's different. Those cups are then put down in front of your tasters. Now, if you're being the most excellent beer scientist, then you have multiple tasters doing this. Uh, you know, maybe... Nineteen, twenty, however many, yeah, you know, a good sized sample pool, and each each taster basically gets those three cups, and they're asked one question. They're told absolutely nothing about the beer, and they're only asked one question. And that's that's really which of the that's really important. What you
0: don't want to do is say to the people, "Okay, now we're going to test these beers to see uh, what the different hops are like." Don't don't do that because right, right away you're telling them what
1: to look for. Right, and that and that induces bias. So. No, no input. Which one of these beers is different? And then they choose the beer that's different. The people who are right, or have chosen the correct beer, I should say. Uh, if you have enough of those people, over half of them, that gives you a pretty good indication that, hey, we're on to something here. And then you can ask them further questions. Like in Denny's hypothetical example, uh, hops. You can ask them about the hop character. In fact, Denny, why don't you tell them about your hop experiment?
0: Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I ran an experiment a number of years ago to uh, to test uh, whether uh, first word hopping had uh, some of the effects that it's purported to have of you know smoother bitterness, more hop flavor, that kind of thing. And
1: and if you're not if you're not on on what first word hopping is, that's a supposedly lost German practice being brought back of adding hops. To the boil kettle right as you're running off, and in theory, smoother bitterness because it has all this time to get bound up with different proteins and da 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 da, and voila, Bob's your uncle, better bitterness.
0: Yeah, that's and that's the theory, and uh, you know, I'll I'll kind of like uh, give away the results right now and say that when I did this experiment, it was uh, fairly inconclusive, and uh, it's one that I intend to repeat sometime in the next couple months here, and uh, you know, when that comes up. Uh, I'll I'll let you all know about it because we're going to ask people to participate in it so that we have uh, more than a single trial. But basically what I did was uh, I I gave these people these beers. I told them nothing about it. They gave them, I had brewed a 10 gallon batch of wort and split it into two five gallon batches in two separate kettles. To one of those kettles, I added uh, an ounce of Cascade hops as first wort hops to the other one, I added an ounce of the same Cascade hops uh, as a 60-minute edition, and those were the only hop additions in either beer. Um, went through the boil. Um, uh, Jamil had set up a tasting panel in California, so when the beers were done, I sent some down to him. I assembled a tasting panel here that consisted of uh, really experienced home brewers, BJCP judges, commercial brewers. and you know kind of got it the results basically showed that most people were able to pick out the different beer but the way they perceived that beer was was very different from each other Um, when the people were able to identify the beer that was different in the in the three samples i gave them a, a set of questions to ask them about the hop character and it was amazing we would get diametrically opposed comments on the same on the same beer so there was not really a lot that i could draw from that so uh that's why we want to want to uh repeat the experiment but that's basically the way a triangle
1: test works so basically your testers they could identify the different beer but some people thought the bitterness was smoother. Some people thought the bitterness was harsher. Yeah, exactly.
0: Hearing? Some people thought that there was less apparent bitterness in the first word hot beer. Some people thought that there was more apparent bitterness. So, I mean, you know, this is a this is an interesting uh, example too of how people's uh, physiology plays into into their perceptions. Uh, the the same beer. Two different people could perceive that beer completely differently. So and and that's the kind of thing you run into when you're trying to interpret the results of one of these experiments. When you're and, and that, you know, that's when you're trying to do a big picture experiment like that. For yourself, it's a lot easier. You know, you have three beers there, taste them three, four, five times to get kind of like a consensus of your own opinion, and then decide for yourself. And, you know. You are a home brewer, so you get to make your own decisions about what works for you.
1: Well, and importantly, I think, you know, remember, this is all uh, going back to our previous mantra. This is all a hobby, right? It's all about having fun and it's all about finding things that work for you. So, yeah, sometimes triangle test may show you that uh, you can get away with something because it doesn't affect your opinion of of your beers. Um, But really, I think. What we come down to is, you know, if we're trying to seek big truths, like everybody loves to talk about science and science experiments as providing you with the absolute rational truth. One hundred percent. No, no bones about it. According to Hoyle, this is the answer according to the universe. Um, but when we're dealing with something in this organoleptic world, yay, big word. <laughs> wow. This organoleptic world of of beer uh Different people have different perceptions, so the answer isn't always going to be consistent, and it's not always going to be the same, which is part of the reason why with these sorts of experiments uh, that we're running, that uh, like Marshall is running uh, over at Brewlosophy, it's important that this stuff gets run again and again, and repetition is an important key part of science, even when it's beer science, and it's particularly important when it's sloppy beer science, because let's face it, None of us have perfect systems, none of us have perfect control, and none of us have absolute 100% repeatability. So therefore, we need lots of experimentation and lots of repetition in order to be able to show that, yeah, you know what? There is something here. And that brings us to uh, one point that we are going to have to enlist your help with, uh, the audience. We're going to start proposing experimental ideas. You know, Take something like Denny's first word hop experiment. What we would love to do is to assemble what we call our Igor's, the independent group of researchers. <laughs> oh, that's so clever. About, I know I, I, I'm almost, I almost kind of want to slap myself for thinking that. that. Yeah, uh, oh, that's okay. Igors, let me slap you. All right. Uh, the EGORs uh, are going to be our helpers in this. And what we want to do is set up experiments and have you guys go out, run the experiments and report back to us and talk to us uh, both on the air and in emails and everything else and see if we can't actually come together about a big broad consensus of the sort of stuff
0: right and so to that end we will be uh, outlining experiments very specifically because it's very important that all the people who do these experiments do them in exactly the same manner so what we'll be doing is we'll be outlining uh how you do the brew how you set up the experiment and how you evaluate the results and we'll be asking all of you guys to get involved and try it out uh citizen science is a wonderful thing and the bigger the sample size the more validity that citizen science has
1: right now i do want to cover one uh, one thing before we go away from this topic and trust us folks we will be coming back to triangle testing again and again and again and again and again and again. And again. Kind of, yeah. Because really to be able to do any sort of experimentation, this is kind of key, but I know right now I can hear it in your thoughts, even though you haven't listened to it yet. As I'm recording this, I don't need to do this. I'm, I'm way too good at this. I've, I can know exactly what the hell it is. I'm tasting and whether or not it's better than something I did before you guys are full of crap. <laughs> All right. So here's where I get to uh, get to tell you about my favorite thing I've ever done to a group of homebrewers and actually survived, uh, even though Denny was worried I wasn't. This was, this was, uh, yeah, the uh, 2014 uh, or no, sorry, the 2015 uh, AHA conference in San Diego, Denny and I gave a talk introduction to experimentation where we covered some of the same stuff we're going to cover on this podcast. And we talked about triangle testing. We talked about uh, the biases that tasting, uh, that tasters uh, introduce just by being tasters. Uh, and we gave people samples of beer. We ran a live triangle test in front of everybody because we consider we could talk blue in the face about what a triangle test is until the cows come home and it's going to be less confusing than if we actually show you. So we did that live in front of people. And in the meanwhile, during the talk, we gave everybody uh, sample a sample at the beginning of the talk. We talked a little bit about it. We went away from it. We talked about other things. We talked about biases, blah, 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 Uh, Showed the triangle test. And we poured sample B during that period of time as well. And then we got the results from the triangle test. And as we went on, we showed everybody what this meant. La, 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 la. We finally stopped and we asked the audience, okay, so between sample A and sample B, which beer do you prefer? Now, the whole time what we've been doing the triangle testing We've been talking about samples A, B, and C, beer one and beer two. Uh, and the judges on that tasting panel had picked something out. And so we went and we had turned around and we asked the audience, okay, between sample A and sample B, which ones do you prefer? And overwhelmingly, the crowd had favorites. And what was really interesting was overwhelmingly the crowd preferred sample B, the second sample served. Now, the trick was- What they didn't sample know. A and sam- yeah, what they didn't know was that sample A and sample B were the exact same beer being poured from the exact same kegs. Ha, 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 they got ha, tricked. Ha, ha.
0: People people still talk about that.
1: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the giant groan out of the crowd was so worth it. <laughs> but really, the idea was, here we are. We're talking about biases, biases that are inherent in our, our taste sensations as human beings. Uh, our tasting process is flawed if you want to be scientifically accurate about it. So these biases were there. We're warning people. We're telling them about them. Hey, you guys are biased. And then we set up the absolute worst possible situation that we could put tasters into. And they all fell for it. <laughs> or I should say most of the audience fell yeah. for it. There were a few people out there who were like, hey, wait, they're the same beer. Yeah,
0: there were there and, were a few, uh,
1: but a very few. Yeah. I mean, overwhelmingly it was something like I think it was like 75% of the people thought sample B was better than sample A. 20% of the people thought Sample A was better and then 5% of the people were like uh, hey I think this is the same beer. Yeah. So that gives you an idea that's why we talk about triangle testing. That's why this is so important.
0: Yeah, right. And again, you know, you you can't you can't sit at home and brew a beer, and two months later brew the same beer with some different hops and automatically go, this is better. you got to put them side by side. you got to do a triangle test, and that's why we've been doing this uh, introduction to triangle testing. And uh, we'll not only be having experiments you can do and tests you can do in the future, but uh, hopefully we'll actually be doing some of these uh, blind triangle tests uh, during the podcast so you can laugh at Drew and me as we screw everything up and get it all wrong.
1: I like screwing things up. Yeah. I like laughing at you. So, you know, I I
0: think we'll each get something out of this. So, You
1: know, you, you know, that's the story of my life. It's very <laughs> being sad.
0: laughed at. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and screwing things up. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. That's our uh, that's our uh, big content for today. And uh, we'll be back in a minute to talk about uh, the season's most maligned ingredient. Pumpkin.
1: Mm, pumpkin.
0: When you're ready to brew, you probably go to your local homebrew shop to get the stuff you need. But where do they get their stuff? If you're lucky, they're ordering from BrewCraft, the premier homebrew wholesaler with lots of great stuff for everybody. With a great selection of products for homebrewing, BrewCraft keeps your homebrew shop ready for you to brew. Well, as we record this, it's the Halloween and holiday season, and that can only mean one thing, pumpkin spice, everything. Uh, And that goes for the beer world, too. Now, there seems to be this big division in the beer world about pumpkin beers. People seem to either love them or hate them. Uh, I'm generally one of the latter. Uh, And I have to admit, I haven't had every pumpkin beer out there, but uh, there aren't many that I've felt like we're worth the uh, worth the gourd. So uh, Drew, what am I missing?
1: Well, it depends upon what you mean by pumpkin beer uh, and exactly what the hell people are doing with it. Uh, I would argue that for how the vast majority of people are doing, you're not missing much, <laughs> uh, if anything, Good, uh, because yeah, I mean, let's face it. Most pumpkin beer out there sucks. Uh, and what is pumpkin beer? Well, People have to remember that before uh, the rise of the IPA of everything, when IPA became the top-selling craft beer segment, uh, the top-selling craft beer segment was seasonal, and that meant whatever your brewery was selling that was appropriate for that particular season. So your summer wheat beer, your spring Bach, your fall whatever, your winter warmer. Uh, So in the fall segment of everything, we got pumpkin uh, because of uh, Buffalo Bill's Brew Pub in Hayward, California. Uh, they were the first ones that I know of to do a pumpkin beer, and that was way back before anybody was doing much of anything. But the idea was, hey, uh, it's fall. Americans love pumpkin pie. Uh, we have lots of pumpkins, and pumpkins have a very long history in American brewing, so let's do something with it and fill out our seasonal profile for uh, the fall. So, problem is, pumpkin... For the most part, is one hundred and twenty percent flavorless.
0: Now, now wait a minute here. This is this is something we need to talk about. I I made this assertion uh, the other day to some friends of mine who are commercial brewers. And they immediately came back and said, no, pumpkin is not flavorless. I've had a beer that had only pumpkin in it, no spices, and it definitely added flavor.
1: Now, I. Well, well no, 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 it's, it's, it's not completely flavorless. It's just that the flavor added by pumpkin is usually so subtle. And then most brewers who are doing it usually add a crap ton of pumpkin pie spice on top of it. So you can't tell a damn thing about it. Uh, and I'll talk, I'll talk about my, uh, my pumpkin only beer uh, in a couple moments. Because that one, but we can was say
0: though that uh, that pumpkin does add some flavor to the beer, uh, at least in your opinion and that of uh, some other people, right?
1: Yeah, but you have to tease it out. It, it, it's not just it's not just as simple as uh, chucking a pumpkin into the beer and going yay. <laughs> uh, so let's talk a little bit about where pumpkin played a role in American uh, brewing. Until the late 1800s, when we started to get the big German and Austrian immigration here in the U.S., and we had pushed out into the upper Midwest, you know, uh, up in Montana and Idaho and Minnesota and all that, and we had people starting to make pilsner beer, barley wasn't a huge commodity crop here in the U.S. It didn't grow very well, particularly like, say, in New England or in the Ohio Valley area, uh, which had kind of been the big agricultural areas of America. So the barley that was grown was kind of crappy. Uh, not very good for brewing, and required a lot of workarounds. And particularly during the colonial period's time, there wasn't a lot of barley to begin with. But people still needed their beer. So uh, if you go back and you look at any colonial era uh, beer recipes or homebrew recipes, you'll notice that they had a sort of loose uh, definition of what made a beer a beer. You know, nowadays everybody everybody seems to have this sort of faux Reinhutzka body sort of thing in their head. Oh, Barley, malt, hop, yeast, blah, 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 blah.
0: Blah, blah, blah Um, is right.
1: Yeah, well, particularly for some crafters. But back in the day when they didn't exactly have a lot of barley and what barley came was probably coming over on a ship from England. uh, You look at those recipes and there's everything in there. There's molasses, there's raisins, there's uh, apples, there's pumpkin out the wazoo. Uh, Pumpkin beer was very, very popular in the colonial period uh, because it turns out pumpkin was an easy to grow and readily available source of starch. So most of the things from the colonial period that are called beer were really just, hey, we fermented starch and made something alcoholic. Yay. Uh, So so, were
0: those people generally using spices in their beers, do you think? Or was it just the pumpkin?
1: No, I've seen I've seen spice additions in uh, beers from the colonial period as well. But it was a different thing. Right. Uh, Remember, again, like this whole stodgy attitude about what makes beer comes really more from the Germans than anywhere else. And at that point in time, we were still very English based and everybody was still going, uh, fairly close to the idea of, well, I need beer and there's no beer I can have here. That's like the beer I had at home. So I'm going to make something that's potable. Um, but let's talk about the, the, the spice part. Uh, slowly as barley became a thing, all the pumpkin, uh, stuff kind of faded in the background. Cider faded in the background, which was the other big American beverage. Whiskey became the big thing. Whiskey was like the biggest use for, uh, wheat, corn and barley, uh, Over beer. Um, And then we get to the modern era when people start to make these pumpkin beers. And by this point in time, pumpkin had by and large become associated in America with pumpkin pie. Uh, Now, if you go almost anywhere else in the world and you say, hey, you know, we have this big gourd thing that we turn around, roast, puree, mix with some eggs and some sugar and some spices and bake into a pie shell and make dessert out of it, uh, they would look at you as if though you're crazy. Uh, most of the rest of the world looks at uh, the American fascination with pumpkin pie in about the same way that they look at our fascination with peanut butter, which is, ooh weird. <laughs> um, literally, I've written articles for, like, Australia, and the very first thing I had to do was go, yes, this is what we do. Don't judge us, you guys eat Vegemite. I was going uh, to say, uh, you know, really, uh,
0: <coughs> every every culture will have its own little oddity like that.
1: Yep. Yeah. But now here in the US, pumpkin pie is pretty much the primary culinary association with pumpkin that we have, Uh, you know, so that, and pumpkin pie itself is really largely defined by the flavor of the spices and the texture of pumpkin, uh, making kind of a custardy pie filling. But really the flavor that we mostly think of is brown sugar, cinnamon, allspice, nutmeg, mace, clove, uh, and ginger. Yeah. Those are kind of your classic components of a of a pumpkin pie, so the vast majority of the pumpkin beers that are out there, or your pumpkin spice lattes, or, God forbid, your pumpkin pie spice M and M's that you can only find at Target, uh, is that spice one that cinnamon, allspice, nutmeg, mace, blah 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 blah, um, and that's what that's what we think, and that's what you taste. Now the problem is a lot of a lot of American craft brewers are adding this stuff into basically a base amber recipe or something of that nature. You know, something kind of toasty brown and um, maybe a little sweet. And then they're adding these spices on top. And all of these spices have, an, uh, they trigger a sweet reaction in our palates. Because we associate all these things with dessert. So the beers already come, uh, these beers that they're already kind of making a little bit more caramelly come off tasting sweeter because now they have all these other components in them.
0: You know, to, to me what really gets me about all those is that you know, I'm I, admittedly I'm the guy who likes beer flavored beer. You know, generally f- flavorings in beer don't do it Boring. for me. Yeah, well, you, that's you know Tastes is tastes, man. You know, everybody has their own. Uh I what I don't I mean, you know, if it was like one or two or, or even you know, even three of those kinds of things in a beer, maybe maybe I would like it better. But it gets so loaded up, I can't taste the beer behind it, you know? I, I don't mind the flavorings mm-hmm. as long as it's still all about the beer. And it seems like so many times with a pumpkin beer, it's not. It's it's about the, the flavorings and not the beer.
1: Well, usually it's just a kind of a dumb, hacky thing that you can do to make something that's very distinctive, right? <laughs> right like, look at all the hard root beers that are out there. And my IPA has 20,000 pounds of hops in it. Yeah. Okay, whatever. Um, so... That's the spice thing. Spices are okay, but don't use them in in excessive amounts.
0: So let's talk about if you want to make a pumpkin beer, what do you think is the best way to go
1: about it? All right. So the best way to go about it is to get yourself some good pumpkin. And uh, we're very fortunate in this day and age, or at least I am. I live in California, which means I have pretty much every produce known to mankind available to me somewhere. Uh, Go to your local grocery store, your local farmer's market. This is absolutely the time for it right now. And go find heirloom pumpkin varieties. Uh, You have the most common thing that you'll find is sugar pie pumpkins. And those are exactly what you'd want to do if you were going to make your own uh, uh, pumpkin pies. But you can also find things like uh, Seminole, uh, Cinderella, uh, a couple of other different varieties. They're ugly looking pumpkins, but they have incredible flavors to them. Uh, Take those home, roast them. Basically cut them in half, scoop out all the goo, put them on a baking sheet, put that in an oven for like, at 350 degrees until they turn soft and and caramelized and slightly burnt. When you say
0: scrape out right. all the goo, you mean scrape out and discard it. You don't mean to put that in the oven. Yeah,
1: right. no, no, yeah. scrape out all the seeds in the pulp and throw that right. away, or make roasted seeds. pumpkin seeds, which yeah, told we'll you to but, do. But that's does. not
0: the part you're using in your beer.
1: Nope, nope. So get rid of the goo, roast the flesh, uh, and you really want it to get nice and soft and also get part of the edges burnt. Because that's caramelization that's happening, that's extra flavor. Uh, Because again, part of the problem with pumpkin is a lot of water. So you you let that cool down, scoop that out, throw that into your mash, and Bob's your uncle, you have a pumpkin beer. Now, let's say that you are not lucky enough to live in a place like California. You don't have access to all that produce, uh, and you're left stuck with just the cans of pumpkin pie slop. Right, which is fine. which is often not even like pumpkin. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's butternut squash, which is uh, actually fine yeah. too. But uh, you can go find the 100 percent pumpkin cans. Uh, they're usually right next to the pumpkin pie spice mi- or pumpkin pie mix. Grab those cans, and this is what I do. I set up a fine mesh uh, fine mesh sieve uh, over a bowl, and I line it with a couple of coffee filters. Dump the goo out onto that, and let it drain. And every couple hours, come back. And switch out the coffee filters to keep letting it drain. And I'll let that go for a couple hours. And end up draining out about 20% of the weight just in water. Right? And that's 20% of lack of flavor that I'm getting rid of. And then, I'll take a low uh, low oven, 300 degrees. And I'll take a cookie sheet that I've lined with a silicone mat or parchment paper. And I'll spread the pumpkin pie stuff out on it. Or the, the pumpkin goo out on it if i'm really wanting to be special i'll mix in brown sugar and some spices into that pumpkin pie uh, pulp and spread that out and roast it and every 20 minutes pull the cookie sheet out of the oven and turn the whole pile of pumpkin stir it up and spread it back out again so that i'm constantly exposing new surface by the time that you're done after 100 minutes the pumpkin has lost the bright orange color and is starting to get those kind of very toasty, dark, chestnut brown edges around it, and it actually when you do the one with the brown sugar in it, it smells like pumpkin candy. Right? So, this is what's good. Now, you go around and you do what I did with it, which is, I love to do a lot of substitutions, and we'll talk about this in future episodes. I like to play around with uh, sort of confounding your sensations and your expectations. So, I'll take this pumpkin puree Uh, Whether fresh roasted or from can. And I'll turn around and I'll use it in a Saison. And I'll use, uh, I have a a standard fall Saison that I do that's kind of based off of a strong Scottish ale. Uh, So nice caramel character, nice uh, toasty character to it. Pumpkin goes into it, no spices. Some brown sugar, absolutely. Then I ferment it with a Saison yeast and I do my usual sort of Saison trick. Uh, Start it low, 63, 64 degrees. And let it ramp up until it wants to, you know, die out. So maybe all the way up into the 90s here in LA during fall, uh, and then that's my spices. And when you pour this beer, you get the some of those roasted pumpkin pie flavors, some of those roasted pumpkin puree flavors, but you also get the cinnamon, the clove, and the nutmeg, all just straight from the saison yeast. Wow. And it incorporates better, and it tastes better. And it's fantastic. That's a
0: great idea, man. Uh, You know, uh, and I can see they would taste a lot more beer-like than if you added all the spices, you know, when you're letting the the yeast itself do it. So, uh, Mm
1: -hmm. well, because you're not picking up all the other flavors. But again, this is just, that's my way of doing pumpkin beer. Of course, I'm going to do a Saison because I'm me. So here's the thing. If you want to brew my favorite recipe, uh, we'll put it up on the website. But uh, just real quick, so uh, all the obsessive people out there who love to hear this sort of detail, uh, this is the recipe for my uh, saison Potorum. Uh, It's a six-gallon batch, uh, which is one of my standard sizes. Comes in at about 1078. Uh, I get 71% efficiency. I get about 18 IBUs in this, 13 SRM, and uh, the grain bill is pretty much a Scottish beer. The grain bill starts with 13.75 pounds of Marisotter malt. Uh, It gets one pound of a really good dark English brown sugar, uh, one with a good amount of molasses to it. I like Billingtons. Uh, It uses one can of pumpkin puree. Uh, You can drain it. Uh, That's the best way to go, uh, just like we talked about. Or you can use it raw, but you're going to get a little less flavor that way. Uh, Half a pound of biscuit malt. uh, A third of a pound of Crystal 75. And a third of a pound of wheat malt. Uh, The hops... Very classical Saison hops. Uh, It is a bittering charge, one ounce of Steering Goldings for 60 minutes. And then a 20-minute addition of a half ounce of Czech Zots. And then fermented with the Belgian Saison yeast uh, from White Labs, uh, aka White Labs 565. Uh, One simple mash infusion step because, again, I'm a lazy brewer. And this one, unlike most of my Saisons, which I brew down at mash in at around 148, This one is actually mashed in and held at 152 for 60 minutes. Uh, Otherwise, follow my usual sort of saison schedule. Uh, Chill the beer down to 63 degrees uh, post-boil. Pitch with plenty of yeast. Uh, Don't put an airlock on. Use uh, aluminum foil over the top of your carboy or however you want to practice an open fermentation. Stick it in a vat of water and let it ride. Uh, Keep it Keep it down into the into the mid 60s for the first two three days, which is when most of your ester and phenol formation is going to happen, and then after that, just let it go. And I guarantee you, you're not going to stall out, and you're going to have a wonderful beer. But again, we're going to have this recipe up on our website, experimentalbrew.com. So don't uh, don't go scrubbing back to try and take notes real quick. Uh, just go and read there. So
0: let's let's talk about drinking other pumpkin beers, some commercial pumpkin beers. You got
1: a favorite? Uh, yeah, it, it took me a while to think about this one because, again, my opinion of most commercial beers are f- fairly low. Uh, but appropriately enough, it's Jolly Pumpkin's pumpkin beer. Uh, I think it's a, a La Parcella. And it's, you know, fantastic because it's Jolly Pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I can't think of a bad beer I've had from those guys. Now, I've had inconsistent beer from them. But you know what? I think the inconsistency is part of the charm. I of the would brewery. agree with that. And yeah, yeah.
0: I'm kind of like you because I don't really care a lot for pumpkin beers. I have to admit that I can't really bring myself to try as many as I can. But uh, the, there is one that I, I, I do enjoy. Uh, and I, I, I'll just say right up front now, uh, I am associated with Oakshire Brewing here in Eugene as their field educator. Uh, that I don't know exactly what that means, but it means that... I, <laughs>
1: I, I, I think it means you drive the show. Well, I bus. do
0: that, among other things. Yeah, right. Uh, but uh, Oakshire makes a beer called Big Black Jack. Uh, it's big because it's an imperial porter. It's black because it's an imperial porter. And the jack comes from the pumpkin, the jack-o'-lantern Halloween. Uh, this beer is made with chocolate. It's made with pumpkin. It's made with pumpkin pie spices. It is the kind of beer that if you told me all that stuff was in it, I would turn and run screaming before you could force me to drink it. But they do something that balances all those flavors so well that it it doesn't shout pumpkin or or chocolate or any of that kind of stuff it just is a really really nice integrated flavor and uh, it's one of those beers that has caused me to rethink my uh, aversion to beers that
1: have a lot of different flavorings added to them now we just have to get it down here so i can try some of it if only i knew somebody who worked at the brewery
0: yeah well you know who knows uh uh, obviously, obviously, I can't send it through the mail to you, so I'll just have to email you some. <laughs> okay, so that's uh, that's our look at pumpkin beers this week. If any of you have a favorite beer, a favorite pumpkin beer out there, uh, write in, let us know. Uh, you can write to us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Tell us about your favorite pumpkin beer, or even better, email us a bottle. <laughs> okay, we'll be right back and answer some questions from listeners, or so we hope. Beer, 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 beer Beer, beer, beer beer Beer, beer 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 Hey, we're back and we have questions from some of the people out there. Hey hey Denny, real quick. Uh, how, do, how do people get questions into us? Well, funny you should ask, Drew. Uh, you can email us at questions at experimentalbrew.com. That is questions at experimentalbrew.com. We're taking questions on beer, on brewing, on bicycles, on the meaning of life, on whatever happened to Drew that made him like that. Uh, so just write in, ask us anything. Uh, we'll talk about it. And if we don't know, we'll either research it or make something up whichever is easier so anyway today our first question is from dana cordis of thousand oaks california dana says there are so many hot varieties out there and i really want to start exploring them but i've kind of intimidated where should i start what should i be evaluating what's from what's the best way for me to go about learning testing Well, I'll start with the last one because it's easy. We've already answered that. The best way to go about testing is with a blind triangle test. Uh, Make the same wort, put uh, different hops in each half, uh, boil for a similar length of time, and then do a blind triangle tasting of the results and see what you like. Um, In terms of where to get started... For me, that means that I go out and I read the descriptions of the hops uh, when there's a new variety that pops up. And if there are some that sound appealing to me, and like everybody else, I have my definite tastes. I'm not a big fan of a lot of the tropical fruity hops that uh, are coming out now. And uh, if something is described as being like fuggles, uh, that immediately gets cut from the list for me. Dirt wolf. Dirt uh, wolf. Yeah, well, you know, as uh, as our fearless leader, Gary Glass at the AHA said, if I want my beer to taste like dirt, it's a whole lot cheaper just to put dirt in it. So that's my <laughs> feeling. If you like fuggles, don't write to me. Write to Gary. Uh, and but don't tell him I said that.
1: Uh, Denny, I think we might want to check uh, you know, the British customs website or immigration website. Uh, you may have just been banned from Britain.
0: Yeah, well, I may have, but that's just the way it is. So, Anyway, after I've, I read through all those descriptions and I find something interesting, I try and find a commercial beer that uses them. Uh, sometimes that's easier said than done, but if you can do it, uh, that's a great way to do it. Uh, if you uh, find something that you think you like, you can always brew a smash beer. That's a single malt and single hop, although you don't have to be quite that pedantic about it you could actually brew any kind of malt beer you want and but just put in all one hop to see what it's like sometimes that doesn't work so well and there's a lot of hops like citra for instance that i feel work better in combination so you'll have to play with that but dana did ask where can i start and that's where you can start
1: well and i'll just add in an extra recommendation if you go and you look at a lot of the big hop growers you know say hop union or ych hops they'll actually publish every year a giant guideline to all the hops that they do. And it's a download, usually like a PDF. And that is filled with a lot of useful information about your hops. You
0: bet It sure is. And pretty much, pretty much. I mean, they're not the only ones you can find that from pretty much any uh, big hop wholesaler. Uh, and so anyway, your turn, buddy, what's the next question?
1: All right. Question number two comes from Christian Thompson Thomas of Los Angeles. He says, "My question is about secondary fermenters. How important is it to rack to a secondary? I pretty much do it for every brew, but there seems to be a consensus that it's really unnecessary." All right, Wait, let's take a vote. Is it necessary? Take- no. Uh, no. I say. I say no.
0: Okay, you say no. That's a consensus.
1: Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. When I think Denny and I both started uh, brewing. There was sort of the, oh, no, you have to rack to to secondary. Uh, If you leave your beer in primary for any longer than a week, you're going to have autolysis and off flavors, and it's going to be terrible, and you're going to suffer as a result. So please don't leave your beer.
0: Funny, Funny thing is, though, almost nobody ever had that happen.
1: Yeah, so I would suspect that that was probably truer back in the days before everybody really started to pay attention to yeast health. Yeah, if you're using kind of crappy homebrewers yeast and just kind of chucking it into the beer and, you know, praying to the gods that it would actually work, I would suspect that you had more of an issue. But nowadays, with everybody paying attention to yeast health and actually knowing what they're doing with it, I don't think you're going to have nearly that issue. I've left beers in primary for two, three months uh, and come out the other side just fine. Uh, yeah,
0: I've done I've done similar stuff, and I've actually tasted a friend's beer, a a low gravity bitter that was in a primary on the yeast for five months, and it was it was as good a beer as anything else he makes. Uh,
1: well, that would raise into question how good is the other beer that he makes. Uh,
0: damning with faint praise is that the term. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other thing that I want to point out too is that, uh, as in many things in home brewing, um. Some of this conventional wisdom is stuff that uh, comes from the commercial brewing world and does not necessarily have a whole lot of application to us. Think of the commercial conical fermenters you've seen, uh, tall, narrow columns uh, with many, many gallons uh, and many, many pounds of, of beer sitting on top of the yeast and that can be a problem but because we're homebrewers, our fermenters are much smaller we use a different geometry and so once again what applies to commercial breweries doesn't necessarily apply
1: to us now i will point out two cases where i think secondary is useful uh one is if you're trying to brew a lot of beer and you have secondary storage and you want to free up your primaries go for it that's exactly what uh, the commercial pros do uh, so if that's what you're trying to do, then yeah, by all means, use the secondary to give you extra settling time before you go into your keg. Now I tend to just go into kegs. Uh, but the other place where I do think that secondary is useful to home brewers is when you're planning on doing a long soak on something like hops for dry hopping, or, uh, let's say oak for oaking the beer. In that particular case, it makes total sense. Hops, you got a lot of people who say, if you get off the yeast, you get better hop character. I haven't really uh, experimented with that enough. I've experimented with that a little bit, and I I really do believe that that's true. Uh, I mean,
0: you'll also see people who say you should dry hop at the very end of primary fermentation because the hops will add oxygen that will oxidize your beer and that you know by adding them while the beer is still fermenting that will help blow out that oxygen yeah, you get co2 scrubbing of
1: entrained oxygen da, 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 yeah, da, da.
0: yeah 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 it just it just goes to show you that there are many many theories about home brewing and you need to try things and decide for yourself
1: indeed all right question number okay.
0: three. okay next question comes from jonathan tronson of woodland hills california right california yep. i assume uh, Okay, he says, to get ready for serving at Thanksgiving, I'm brewing a 10-gallon batch of maple pecan porter, and it calls for 40 ounces or two pounds of grade B maple syrup in the secondary. Now, in case you're confused like I was, that's 40 liquid ounces or two pounds of maple syrup. Am I going to end up with too sweet a beer uh, if I do that? Uh, And if not... How can I make sure that uh, that it's not too sweet a beer, and how can I make sure that it doesn't all ferment out? Well, you know, you can't. Basically, uh, you may you may think that uh, you have like uh, removed all the yeast from that beer before you add the maple syrup, but let me guarantee you, there's still a lot of those little yeasty guys swimming around in there. Yeah. So any kind of sugar you add is going to ferment out and make your beer drier and take a portion of the flavor along with it.
1: Well, and particularly when you're talking about a syrup, right? I mean, like a, a simple syrup like this is this is yeast rocket fuel. You know, yeast, yeast will basically see it and go, oh.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one thing you're not going to have to worry about, probably, is getting too sweet a beer, uh, unless the alcohol gets so high that uh, the yeast just can't cope with the... Uh, maple syrup. Uh, So that's not going to be an issue. Uh, The issue is how are you going to get any maple flavor to stay in there? Now, uh, I haven't experimented a lot with maple, but I know some people who have, and I'm told that if you try and overdo the maple syrup to uh, really get a lot of flavor into the beer, that you risk almost adding a, a woody kind of flavor to the beer. Uh, in that case, it might not be a bad idea to explore some quality maple extracts. Now, homebrewers cringe whenever you say the word extract, whether it's malt extract or a flavoring extract or whatever. But, you know, there's some really good ones out there. You may need to do a little research to find one, but it might be worth your time.
1: Uh, I have one recommendation. Uh, yes. If you're looking for flavoring extracts, I almost always point people to Olive Nation uh okay. olive olive nation makes really top notch extracts uh, uh, uh go look them up online olivenation.com. they make really good flavoring syrups that don't taste like uh chemical badness
0: okay cool good good recommendation i will check them out so. and
1: one other of, one other of more for the people who really don't want to use extract but still want that sort of mapley thing uh There's a classical spice uh, generally thought of as a Middle Eastern spice called fenugreek, F-E-N-U, Greek. And uh, it's used a lot in Middle Eastern cuisine, but when you use it, it adds a maple note. In fact, most maple extracts are made using fenugreek. Uh, So if you can get your hands on some fresh fenugreek and you want to go au naturel, then you can make your own in the kettle extract using fenugreek and get a maple flavor.
0: Wow cool
1: very cool okay our final question for the day drew what's up uh yeah this is from matthew trumbo of moore park california and he says when transferring from primary to secondary or even secondary to keg or bottle for that matter what are the best tricks to help filter out unwanted debris aka yeast hop waste etc etc well i guess today is our secondary day but uh What's the best way to get, uh, to keep the, the debris out? I will tell you right now, to me, the best and easiest is cold and time. Yep. So uh, what I will do is, uh, since I have a giant stupid number of kegs hanging around my house, uh, I will rack my beer out of the primary, uh, and I will take it over to a keg, and then I will go throw that in my chest freezer and have that down as close to 32 degrees as possible, Uh, Generally, I run that chest freezer at about 35. I'll let the keg sit there for as long as I think it needs, you know, two to five days, typically. And then I'll rack out of that keg just using a jumper hose and I'll go into another keg. And before I I complete the connection, I'll make sure to blow off a little bit of the beer out of the keg. Uh, Don't jostle the keg around, just blow off a little bit of the beer reattach everything make sure you got your jumper hose complete and that first little blow off should contain most of the yeast and other crud that you would uh that you'd pick up and transfer and then you can just jumper it into another keg and and have nice clean beer uh, i can also really recommend uh if you don't necessarily want to take the time to do the full cold crash uh either gelatin if you're not vegan uh or actually never mind the other one's not vegan either uh or there's a uh a two-part additive uh finding product called uh either super clear or keg clear i can't remember which one uh but clear with a k K k-l-e-e-r and it works wonders it will drop everything out now if you can combine gelatin or another finding like super clear and cold you will never have any problems
0: Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, and I do something very similar. I, I don't go to the effort of uh, transferring to a keg first. I just, uh, you know, my bucket is sitting in the chest freezer. I just crank the temp down to about 33, leave it there for a few days, very gently lift that bucket out of the chest freezer and up onto the uh, the tabletop and rack from uh, from above all the crud in the bottom. Uh, one other thing that can be effective is to take a sanitized uh, muslin or nylon hot bag and put it around the bottom end of your racking cane, the the end that goes into the the beer that that you're transferring. Uh, you don't want to put it on the output end, the end that's going into your empty container, because uh, you really risk aerating and oxidizing your beer like that. But uh, a sanitized hot bag over the end of the rack and cane can help also. So, Anyway, those are our questions for this week. If you want to know about anything, I mean anything, uh, beer, brewing, or whatever, write to us, questions at experimentalbrew.com and uh, who knows, you may hear your questions show up on the air.
1: We'll Yay. be back in
0: just a minute with our quick tip of the week. Okay, before we get out of here this week,
1: it's time for our quick tip. This one is from Drew. Drew. All right. So here's my quick tip for the week. Take a lesson from chefs and clean as you go. All right. Most of us, you know, we know that brewing makes a little bit of a mess, uh, but, you know, we're having fun during the day. We're sitting there slamming back beers and, and well, you know, cleaning is just kind of a hassle, but I will tell you right now, clean as you go. I always, I leave the drinking until I'm at least in the boil. But before I even get to the boil, I will have my mash tongue cleaned out. I will have my my fermenters cleaned out and sanitized. And I will make sure that my whole chilling rig, which is a super complicated chilling rig to deal with Southern California groundwater temperatures, uh, I will have that recirculating, cleaned out, and sanitized, all using the water that's left over in my HLT. And so that by the end of the day, when I get the beer chilled out, all I have to do is run the beer out through the chiller, into the fermenters, pitch. I, uh, I'll run some more hot water through my chiller and I'll blow that out so it's dry, and then all I gotta do is clean up the boil kettle. Because let me tell you, I've done it a couple of times where I've ignored the mash tun during the, the brew day, and that by the time I've gotten to the end of the brew day, I've been like, oh, I'm tired. I'll just do it in the morning." And then I forget, and come uh, come back a couple of days later and open up the mash tun and feel like I'm in an episode of The Walking Dead.
0: Yeah, man, you've created a new life form at that point.
1: Yeah. So remember, quick tip of the week clean as you go it will lead to a far less stressful brew day you're less likely to forget things and you're going to be much happier when you come down to the end of it
0: and you'll get to a beer just that much sooner too because mm. you've got most of the cleaning done by the time you're you're done brewing so
1: yeah mm, beer
0: <laughs> yeah okay so coming up in the, in future episodes here let me just kind of give you a quick rundown of some of the things we're looking at uh Drew and I both use and love the Pico Brew Zymatic, so we're going to be talking about that. There seems to be a lot of controversy out there over it for some reason. Uh, I can't really understand uh, why people are upset, but some people feel like it's not really brewing. So uh,
1: well, hey, we're going to talk about... Look, the, the robots yeah. are taking our jobs, man.
0: Yeah, well, as far as I'm concerned, when somebody says it's not really brewing, my two questions are who made the rules and who's keeping score? It's homebrewing. Do what you want. So we're going to be talking about that. We're also going to be giving you an experiment to try. Uh, it, it's great to experiment on your own, but for real data validity, there's nothing like uh, doing an experiment in numbers. So we're going to lay out an experiment from the design, through the procedure of brewing, through the evaluation, and we're going to ask you guys to all do that experiment and send us your uh your results we're going to be talking about uh, recipe design we're going to be talking about equipment innovations all kinds of stuff so uh come back and listen to us again and this is this is our question of the week this is what we want to ask you guys to let us know about pumpkin is a nearly universally reviled ingredient but some folks love it and they want to like rehab it and make something of it so what other ingredients do you love that other people seem to hate? Why do you love them? Let us know on Facebook, or on Twitter, or at podcast on experiment. excuse me, that would be podcast at ExperimentalBrew.com. We'll be taking the best responses and bringing them to you every show. So remember, again, this week's question is, what are some ingredients you love that other people hate and why do you love them? Let us know, podcast at ExperimentalBrew.com.
1: Today, we've brought you the lowdown on what we consider to be the most fundamental technique in any sort of experimental brewing, uh, anything that you ever want to do, and really to know how you're making a difference in your beer. That The idea of doing a proper triangle test. Now, hopefully, you guys will go out there and you'll try it yourself. If you have any questions, please let us know. All the usual uh, channels are open to you. Uh, but remember, get out there and brew. Remember to have some fun with some pumpkin. Show people that pumpkin beer doesn't have to suck. Uh, but hey.
0: <laughs> doesn't have to, right. Thanks a lot, guys, for coming along with us on uh, this first broadcast of Experimental Brewing, the podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is uh, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at Experimental Brew on Facebook, on Instagram and whatever new social media that Drew thinks up in the next few days. If you need to ask us any questions, suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or you want to rant and rave, uh, just email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can email me individually at denny at experimentalbrew.com or
1: through at experimentalbrew.com. All right. Well, hey, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting uh, service. And please, for the love of all things Beery, give us a review. Those reviews actually help people find us and listen to us. And, you know, frankly, we need your love and support. So please, give a review. That's right. And always, remember to brew experimentally. Or brew wacky.